Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Games We Love podcast. I'm your host, Aaron White, and you are listening to the show that promotes positive gaming discussion, featuring interviews and conversations with passionate gamers, including journalists, developers, podcasters, streamers, critics, and other diehard video game fans about a personal favorite game they love. In this episode of the show, I am joined by a very special guest. He is the co-founder and the co-host of the Feel and Film podcast, and also my best friend. Welcome to the show, Patrick Hicks. Hello, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you are very welcome. I am excited to do this. Uh, you know, listeners, a little backstory. I'm not going to say much because I want to interview Patrick officially, and he'll probably tell you all of his stuff. But yes, he is the co-host of the podcast that I am the other half of that co-host. And so this is exciting. We have done so many shows together in the movie world. And now here I am on this little side venture, and he's right here with me, ch chipping in for the ride. It's good to be in the co-pilot seat for once. <laughs> <laughs> right? All the pressure's off of you. It's well, yeah. actually actually backward. It's actually all on you. You're the you're the oh, guest here. Oh, that's true. I just yeah. have to ask questions. So, I'm normal, sitting in the interview chair, yeah. <laughs> you may be relying on me. I can't help you answer them with these, you know? Like <laughs> you're on your own, at least until we get to the big one. Yeah. Well, listeners, we always start this show with an interview of the guest. And so, we're going to start right now, Patrick. I would love to hear about your life and your journey, and we will get to the podcast later, but I want to start, because this is a gaming show, by talking about your history with gaming, going all the way back to your childhood or whenever it was you may have played your first game. How long has that been? What did you start off with? Well, as of this recording, I'm 41 years old, and I pride myself on being a 70s baby, an 80s child, a 90s teenager, and a new millennium adult. I feel like I have spanned the course of four decades and have represented well. Maybe not in the baby stage, because I don't remember much of that, but I definitely remember being a child of the 80s. And I grew up around television, video games, arcades, things like that. So I was around a screen before screens were a thing to be cautious of. And talking to my son who is getting used to having screens, I remind him that there were days when you couldn't just skip through commercials. There were days when you couldn't have instant gratification where you couldn't just start a game over at a certain point because you saved it right away. You had quarters that would be lost because you couldn't quite beat that final boss. And I mostly grew up around home consoles my brother and I, who were four years apart, we didn't have a lot in common. But what we did have in common was video game consoles, starting with the Atari 2600, advancing up to the 7800, and then eventually the Nintendo, Sega, and then it just sprung from there. So I have lived and died by video games as a child. I remember vividly in junior high having no life, because who has a life in junior high? I mean, come on. And if you do, I envy you. Still, even at 41 years old, Friday nights, I remember being in the den of my parents' house after going to the video store. For those of you who don't know what that is, look it up. It's kind of cool. <laughs> and renting a couple of video games, typically a sports game and then maybe an action-based game. And I would camp out on their hide-a-bed that would get right next to their television, their LCD television. And I would hook up my... I guess at the time it was a Sega Genesis 
And I would play until the wee hours of the morning. And I would sleep in on Saturday morning. And then I still didn't have a life on Saturday. It was not like anything changed in those 24 hours. I would do it again. And I would be ever so sleepy Sunday morning going to church and would faithfully tell my parents, come on, let me just stay home. I'm too tired. And they would be like, well, if you hadn't stayed up playing video games all night, you wouldn't be tired. This was a repetitive thing, Aaron. And it was a rite of passage for me because I felt like as someone who didn't have a wide social net, this was the thing that really kind of kept me entertained. It made me feel like I was just kind of doing something important. This is what really defined the introvert that I have now embraced in my 40s. Well, your story is so similar to my own. Not surprising. It reminds me of The Princess Bride when you were describing that. I was like, yeah, that's basically The Princess Bride in the opening of it, how he's staying home, quote unquote, sick. I guess he is sick, isn't he? He's kind of sick. He's playing sicker than he actually is. So he can pull out the baseball game and grandpa's like, "Uh uh-uh, not going to cut it. You and I lived through that era. Yeah. And I'm sure it still exists to this day in some form or fashion with kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had to cut my kids off before. Luckily, it's never been a problem like it was for me. (laughs) Thankfully, they haven't followed in my footsteps. Um, But yeah, like for us, and I love that you bring up sports games. So what was your go-to sports games? Did you have a favorite sport that you like to play video game version of? I remember if we talk about like, like official sports. I was always a Madden guy, loved getting each Madden game. I also had a love for Joe Montana, NBA Jam, those types of things. Really anything that was ported from an arcade to a home console Mm -hmm. and specifically the Genesis, because that was my jam. I was a Nintendo. And then when the Sega Nintendo war started, I aired on the side of Sonic. So I was a Genesis guy. So all the EA sports games which I don't know that they made the Super NES version of them, but the but the Genesis version was always uh, the thing that I played. I'd always get mad in 95, 96, 97, and I would always find the glitches in the game to manipulate them. Because if I was ever to create my own podcast, it would probably be the game cheater or the <laughs> guy who sucks at video games, a sucky gamer. And I would at some point find a cheat code to try to get an advantage because I never – rarely did I ever play a game straight. And I think sports games helped level the playing field for me because there weren't cheats. You just had football plays or you were running up and down a basketball court and hopefully going to sink a dunk or a three-pointer. But for the most part, yeah, sports games were my my thing. And usually NBA Jam and Madden were the ones that I played growing up. Rest in peace, Game Genie. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I lived and died by that with the Nintendo games. For sure. Well, I wanted to kind of, I guess, transition there. That's perfect because I wanted to know more about how you game maybe now versus there's a good place where we get started. We're obviously going to talk about one of your favorite games later on in this episode, but over those years, you said you've kind of evolved and changed in the different decades, but what are, what are some of your gaming habits that have maybe been more consistent? Favorite genres over the years, favorite consoles? Stuff like that. How is how has your gaming evolved in the phases of your life as you moved from a child to where you are now as an adult with a wife and a child? There was definitely a gap when I hit college. I think I had a PlayStation, and what has stayed with me even to this day is sports games. It's expanded to tennis, FIFA, Rocket League to an extent, and so the consoles change, but the genres don't. 
And sports is always going to be a primary thing for me because of the fact that it is short-lived. I can play a quick nine innings of baseball or I can play a couple of games of college football. Hopefully I'll get to play more of that as they'll hopefully release Dude, a, come a new on, incident. Right? Yeah. Come on, EA. Give us our NCAA series back, please. Yeah. Yeah, I still go back to my NCAA 14 on, on PlayStation 3 just to relive the glory days of things that weren't glorious at all. <laughs> well, no, back then you were trying to continue, you were trying to win titles for LSU and bring a championship. Now you don't have, now you don't have to fake it, Patrick. It happened. Yeah. It actually yeah. did happen last year. This is the year they that, canceled football and sports forever. Thankfully. Yeah. Th this is the year that Joe Burrow would have been on the cover oh, and I would man. have bought two copies, one just to have in plastic and then one to play. But sports games have always been with me as I got out of college and started kind of my, official adult time period i really left games occasionally i would hear about the next gen console and i'll be like that's kind of cool i think that'd be kind of neat it wasn't until i got married and my parents bought my wife and i a wii one year that i started feeling like oh this is kind of fun i'd forgotten how much fun that is and that sort of morphed into the steam catalog and learning about PC games. I was transitioning out from being a Mac guy to a PC guy. So my Steam library started growing and has continued to grow. And because of that, I find myself enjoying more than just sports platform games. I do side scrollers. I do open world mission based games. But I'll tell you what I'm really enjoying right now is story based games where you have a linear point A to point B you have compelling characters, you have a pretty intense plot, and and that can be from any kind of genre. It can be, to an extent, it can be comedy, it can be horror, it can be comic book, whatever. As long as you're giving me a reason to stay with these characters, as long as you're giving me a reason to stay with the story, the games that I've been really interested in on PS3 and now PS4 are those that I can always come back to and just continue their story. Now, the way that I game these days is because I have a family. And a I don't have and a podcast, <laughs> right? And other side sorry, projects. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, gaming is is one of those things that I've recently learned to appreciate more. I bought a PS4 finally. I, I always joke with you offline about how I'm always a, a generation behind, and that's still true. With the coming of PS5, I almost in a half second kind of regretted my PS4 purchase last Christmas. But then I was like, no, there are great games I haven't played yet. I'm excited to play them. And so I bought my PS4, finally broke it out this spring. And over the course of the last couple of months, I found ways to compartmentalize some of my time after my family goes to bed. Usually it's after our podcast when we record. I've actually dedicated three nights a week to gaming. And one of those nights will be to probably a, a PC game, maybe a puzzle or a side scroller. The second night is for a story based game. And then the third night is really just kind of up in the air what I'm interested in. It could be a sports game or a racing game, could be another side scroller. It's really just three dedicated nights to give me an outlet to be able to explore some of the games that I missed that I was late to the party on. 
and to look forward to new entries that might be coming around. Will I get a PS5 when it comes out? Absolutely not, because I'm not ready for that yet. I'm still going to be a generation behind, and I'm okay with that, because the thing about it is that if you haven't experienced these games, they're still going to be new to you. So the games that I'm experiencing for the first time are at least two years old, but that's okay, because I don't have to be a part of those conversations to get validated. That's the great thing about video games is I sit in my office for an hour and a half to two hours on those gaming nights, and it's just me, my controller, and my headphones, and these games that I'm immersed in, and that's enough for me. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. I think because people listening here, a lot of my guests are going to be people in the industry, people who either game for a living in some cases or cover the gaming industry for a living, People who maybe are like me, who are still single or are <laughs> single again and don't have the commitment of a family where they can put in more time, right? You can't take a weekend off to binge The Last of Us 2. You just can't do that in the same way that maybe I could do, potentially. And so it's a different flow. And I actually wanted to use this as a moment to recommend a podcast. I'm hoping to get a couple of these guys on the show eventually for my listeners to interview them. But there's a podcast out there. It's called Married to the Games. And it's a bunch of guys. And their whole thing is, oh, I can't remember the phrase right now, but it's like watch kids, wives, and nine to fives or something like that. And basically, it's they're guys who are married, who have kids, who have jobs, and yet they still feel like they're married to the games. They're in love with gaming. And so they game much like you do, Patrick, very differently than the norm, than keeping up with the Joneses, right? And I think it's interesting because you have to go about the same thing as they do with their flow. They have to curate what they're going to play. They can't play everything. Everything sounds good, but you just can't get to it all. I was wondering, so you said story games. Is there any other criteria that you think is going to help you as you go forward in life to decide what games to pick and choose to play? Well, it's... Being able to have outlets like Steam that kind of give you an explosion of a package of games for a dirt cheap price, I think giving that exposure allows me to cull those, but at the same time, I don't feel the pressure to have to finish them. What I've discovered, Aaron, is through that platform, through Steam and through recommendations by coworkers, I found that. I enjoy other types of games. I've really enjoyed the side-scrolling games, things like Super Meat Boy or Braid, that take the side-scroller and give it an interesting twist. Those are a couple of games that are my favorites. That came from a documentary, Indie Game the Movie. I didn't know about those games before that movie, and I was like, well, I want to play these games now. So some of it's cultivated by Steam, uh, some of it's cultivated by Humble Bundle, some of it's cultivated by getting exposed to documentaries because I'm a, I like watching docs and I like doing films and things like that. So it kind of carries over into the movie world. But the other thing is that when I get a recommendation by somebody, the best thing you can hear, and you can attest to this is you would love this. Now, depending on the person, <laughs> you know, if it's you, I'm going to take that more seriously than I am just some guy on the street. You would love X game. So when I get a recommendation, depending on who it is that's giving me that recommendation, if I know if they know me pretty well, it's a game that I'm going to go ahead and focus on and find time to do. So for me, I take those three nights that gives me that exploration to say, okay, if I'm going to do 
something like Uncharted on Tuesday night, which is a story-based game, I'm going to do something a little bit less committed than than that to give me, really, if I have time, so if I only have an hour, because I need to get to bed before one, sometimes it doesn't happen, I will give myself those three nights to give me that kind of diversity. And so if I know I like puzzle games, I know I like side-scrolling games, I know I like open-world games, and I know what kind of commitment is involved in a session, I'm going to pick them based on the season of my life. So if I'm heavily involved in side projects, I'm probably going to look at shorter games, things that don't require a lot of things to remember. Really, it's just like you got through this stage. It's now time to go to this stage. So in the case of Braid, I can go through three or four stages, have a great time, and then shut the computer off and go to bed. So it just really depends on kind of where my season of life is and what I'm involved with. But the exposure that I've had to those different outlets of of games has allowed me to kind of say, here's what I gravitate towards. Awesome. Well, before we get into talking about the games themselves, I wanted to at least let you briefly tell me about your creative endeavors. And it sounds weird because I know about your creative endeavors, and yet I want everybody else to know about them. You have the Feelin' Film podcast, but you are also an award-winning short film director. So tell me how you got involved in those two things, and then you can wrap it up, I guess, I would love to know if you have any creative goals left in your body. What's what's left on the plate for you to accomplish? I love being creative, whether that's through simple design projects or through creating short films or doing the podcast. Any way that I can put myself in a position to take an idea and put it on paper or on the screen or in your ears. I want to do that. And the podcast was a fantastic outlet because it came from a desire by you and I to talk about the things that we love, movies, in a way that common people should. I say common, I mean non-film critics, non-online bloggers. What we were finding was that there was so much negativity that was being catered to in the world of social media and all this instant information the things that are attractive are the trashing of something. It's rare that we get a glorious review about a movie that people are talking about. No, people are talking about the buzzword negative review that so-and-so just said that, oh, it's complete trash. It's a dumpster fire. For some reason, psychologically, we as people kind of gravitate towards that. And I, I don't like that. And you didn't like that. And so in the midst of a time when we were walking through Battlestar Galactica together and just talking about the things that we loved about it. Batman v Superman came on our radar. We were both extremely excited about it because it featured our two favorite DC characters. And we appreciated Zack Snyder, still do. And it was getting trashed. And so we decided, let's put this out there. Let's create a podcast and i think we went through a couple of iterations in the name i think one of it was uh critics are dumb don't which i'm glad we didn't do that don't tell people how bad they were <laughs> i'm glad we didn't go with that one i'm pretty but sure i fought for that for a while too you I'm did pretty sure I, I, <laughs> I remember specifically you told me i've got a twitter handle for this and i'm like really you want to do this okay <laughs> and so it's prevailed <laughs> and so feeling film was born because we really wanted to focus on the emotional aspect of going into a theater and experiencing the storytelling because that's what creative people that put these movies out want to do for the most part maybe the exception of a couple of directors that i'll leave on the table that you can <laughs> you can guess 
but also as an audience, we go in there to be entertained. We go in there because we want to feel something. We don't go in there to judge the lighting or judge the, the way in which a script is flowing. Those are things that are worth talking about, but we felt like they were kind of talked to death and they were defining the subjectivity of what makes a movie good or bad. And so focusing on the emotional merit as opposed to the technical was one of those things that I was on board with. And Batman v Superman was our inaugural episode. We're what, 230 something episodes in now and still going strong. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in probably a year and the podcast came up. She goes, you're still doing that? I said, yep, we're changing things up a bit right now. But yeah, we're still covering movies because that's what we love. And that passion to do that and the subject matter of what we talked about encourages what I do on the side, which is make short films. Now, my first instance of doing a short film, of actually like directing and writing one, came about four years ago as part of a, an event called the 48-Hour Film Project where you get a team together, you have a specific genre that you're given, and you have 48 hours to put all this stuff together. You know, write the script, shoot it edit it, score it, put the Foley in if there is any, and then package it up and submit it. And being able to experience that, especially from the director's chair, it gave me such a rush. And there's something magical about seeing your name on the screen. And I'll admit, some of the some of the stuff that we put out there, it's 48 hours, Aaron, so you're not going to get Oscar-worthy stuff necessarily. But being able to see your film on screen, hearing people react to it. It's magical. It's absolutely magical. And I got some just completely addicted to it. So what I'm doing now is trying to find opportunities to put more of that stuff together, whether it's storytelling in fictional form or through documentaries or just through other creative outlets. Two of the things I've got going on right now and to kind of answer what's happening next, two of the projects that are currently on my plate One's a documentary and one is an online project that has the desire to move towards a television show. Both center around food. The documentary centers around this, I think it's now a almost 11-year-old quarter pounder that still looks like it could live in the current McDonald's restaurant, wow. which is kind of scary. But the idea behind the documentary is, is not the supersize me type thing and fast food is bad, but really focusing on food and the idea that it is there to both celebrate and sustain life. So one of the guys that I'm working with, we're putting our heads together and trying to get interviews with restaurant owners, with scientists, with educators, with families to talk about their attitude towards food why they cook the way they do, why use organic as opposed to non-organic. And it's really an avenue for us to not preach necessarily, although that's what documentaries can do. They can influence and persuade, but to really celebrate the fact that food in and of itself isn't just something that we consume. It's something that we use as a means to celebrate. And so related to that, but not necessarily in the same kind of production, a friend of mine and I are working on this idea where we are highlighting the local restaurants around our state. And we're calling it tentatively Diamond State Dining, which is because, um, you know, I'm from Arkansas, the Diamond State, as you are. And 
will essentially film these restaurant owners, these chefs, and just listen to their story, have their story on on camera, and couple that with the stuff that you need to figure out where you want to go eat. So Diamond State Dining is the place you want to head toward, website or whatever it is. And it you go there, you hear these stories from these restaurants, and it tells you all about the history of the restaurant, why they got started. It puts a person with the restaurant. So you're not just looking for a place to eat, you're looking for a place to experience. And so it's interesting that those two projects are happening kind of concurrently because they're not related. Yeah. But they both influence one another. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do is get momentum for both of them because they do have influence on one another. And if I'm the pivot for each one, if I'm the anchor for each one, that makes it really opportunistic for it to be uh, for it to be successful. So those are the two current things I'm working on. Um, I'm trying to get to be a better writer doing writing prompts and things like that. But yeah, that's really kind of where my creativity is right now with that in the podcast. Well, that's a lot. So it I'm is. glad you're <laughs> able to squeeze in a few nights of gaming still. You know that Diamond State Dining sounds a lot like it could be just feeling food. It's very similar, yeah. but you don't know, do that. We could we could be operating as <laughs> Diamond State Dining, but doing business as. <laughs> but yeah. So we don't know. I mean, yeah, that's just it's a it's a working title at this point, but it may morph into into something else. Okay, well, let's get into the games section of this podcast. I'd like to start here, and I call this our gaming shout-outs. And the reason I do that is partially because these episodes are recorded sometimes weeks, even a month or more in advance, and I don't want everyone to be talking about the new hotness as if it was the new hotness. Because someone may not be listening to this episode, Patrick, until next year. Who knows? So I'm going to give it like a six-month window or so. And I also... In the vein of feel and film and what you and I love to do and be positive and talk about things we enjoy, our podcast episodes about movies are always better when we love the movie. So I want you to shout out something that you've really enjoyed in the last six months that you've played. Obviously not the big one that we're going to talk about, but something else. Well, there's two. And the first one is Life is Strange. It is a choice-driven adventure game by the folks at Square Enix. Enix? Enix. I can't remember. Enix and, is fine. We go with Enix. Okay, Enix. <laughs> this is me, the gaming noob, right? <laughs> Trying to say. <laughs> and it focuses on this character named Max Colfield. Uh, she's a teenage girl at this um, kind of boarding school. And she's a photographer. And she discovers that she has this ability to rewind time at any moment, uh, leading her every choice to really create what's considered the butterfly effect. So one choice actually influences the next few minutes of the game. So she might make a choice to not scribble on her dry erase board. And because of that, somebody who was looking to see what was on her dry erase board didn't see it. And therefore she ended up not getting invited to a party or something. So sometimes the, tr the choices are trivial. It's five episodes. I think what I'm loving about it is that there's a story here and it's got some sci-fi, but it's also got a lot of emotion. Episode two leaves you, I'm not going to spoil anything, but episode two leaves you, if you've made a certain choice, feeling completely gut checked. And I made a choice or I made choices that led to 
something pretty tragic and I didn't have to. And what it does is it, it forces you to kind of live with those consequences as you move into the next episode. So I'm about midway through there. Uh, the guy that recommended it to me every Monday, he knows that I try to play it on Sunday nights because that's like my unofficial night to play it because I don't have a lot of time after the podcast. And he's like, did you, did you get into any life is strange? And when I can tell him that he gets real giddy. So I've been playing that. It's really, really fantastic. The other one is Marvel's Spider-Man. Now, this is at the point of this podcast episode is a couple of years old, but to me, it feels as fresh as the day it came out. I absolutely love this game. It makes me feel great. It makes me feel like I'm Spider-Man. There is a tone that is completely in line with the comic book character. He is probably my favorite Marvel character. And while I can't say he's my favorite superhero, he comes close and I think because he's so different than, say, Superman, I think that's why I put him as close to that as possible, because he is a grounded character, even though he flies everywhere with these webs. The game itself allows you to explore and be in awe of New York City, but not New York City as we know it, New York City as the Marvel Universe knows it. So you see the... Brooklyn Bridge and you see uh, Washington Square Park and then you see <laughs> Avengers Tower I'm like yeah. what are you kidding me it's so big and what's great about it Aaron is that I can stop or I can take a gaming session and I can either pursue the main story or I can just collect things and do side missions there's so much to do in it that I don't ever feel like I'm missing anything I feel like I'm getting something out of it every time, whereas there are some games that I like, but I feel like I'm just kind of meandering around until I get to an amazing moment. And the game we talk about has a few of those, not many, but I really enjoy having a game that allows me to just feel like I'm always doing something productive, like I'm always doing something that makes me feel like I'm accomplishing something. And even some of the side missions that, I could complete the game without having the side missions there enhance the gaming world itself. So I do something as a side mission and it sort of indirectly affects how New York is running at a particular point. So those two games have been my go-tos the other two the other nights when I'm not getting through the game that we're going to be talking about. And um, the great thing about Spider-Man is that I'll probably be playing it for the next year because it's just so big. Well, I think I talked about Spider-Man on episode two of this podcast, so I assure you listeners, we're not just a Spider-Man podcast, but Patrick and I started playing it at very similar times, and so we've been having this moment together. I might have even mentioned that a couple episodes ago, but I obviously, if people have listened, they'll know I echo everything that you just said and more. It is amazing. One of my favorite games ever. I have since... I talked about it, gone on to not only platinum the game, but I have 100%ed all of the DLC in this game. I have done every bit of content that exists, and for me to do that in an open world go game is extremely rare, but it's that good. It's that special. It has elevated him. I've been reading books, Patrick. I read a Spider-Man and philosophy book after it. I've got a stack of comic books over there on my table, and like you, he has become probably my favorite 
Marvel character. It is crazy. And and I love being able to have that connection with you. And it's it's generated this plan that you and I have to take one of your gaming nights come September and for the two of us to enjoy going through Marvel's Avengers together. And I, I'm really excited for that. I think it's going to be fun not to try and spam it. Like some people will play it that way and that's fine, but we're going to take it at our own pace and be consistent with it and just enjoy that together. And it's going to be a blast. I also will a hundred percent back you on life is strange. I played it when it came out. I still haven't gotten to life is strange too. I need to, but life is strange was game changing at the time. It was, it came at a time when I was obsessed with telltale games and it's a very similar flow to how you make those choices. I'm actually currently, I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but I'm streaming every Monday night, Detroit Become Human. Right now, I'm doing a Let's Play series on my Twitch, and I'm also posting those to my YouTube. I'll give you that information later, listeners. But it's very similar to that as well, where it's just, you're walking around and you're investigating the world, and it's, I love it, man. I, like, Life is Strange, you, you're going to find something on the desk, and you're going to read a note that someone left, and it's going to give you background to that world. And I, I just love that. That's how you find things out, instead of the game just telling you everything. With yeah. Your, characters talking so it's great i know you're gonna have your mind blown several more times and you're probably gonna call me crying at this point at one point so <laughs> i won't tell you why but it gets very very emotional um even more so toward it is so keep me updated on how that goes i have been playing a game called man eater that i just want to briefly mention i was really hyped for this game when it got announced maybe a year or so ago or at least came into big time public knowledge a year or so ago the developers call this a shark PG because you literally are a shark, a baby shark when you start, and your whole point is to grow up and eat things because you're a man eater. It's framed around, it's an open world game that is framed around this idea of a reality TV show. And so... The main center of this reality TV show is a fisherman who very violently caught and killed your mother and cut you out of her belly when you were a baby. He found out, you know, when he killed her that she was pregnant and you, either you or she, I think it's you, but you chomp off his hand and then you get away. And so he's committed to hunting you down, right? And there's this reality show that's following his journey as he's trying to catch the shark that ate his hand. It's very Captain Hook-esque with the alligator. And it's narrated by Chris Parnell from Saturday Night Live and many, many uh, comedy hits. And it is phenomenal. The dialogue is hilarious. It has you just rolling as you're playing this game all the time because it's so funny. And basically, there's just all these different biomes that you will move through as your shark in any as any open world game would be you have one area you have a bunch of objectives it might be little missions to you know clear out the catfish and so you have to go eat 10 catfish and there are collectibles so there are license plates laying around the world sometimes they're up on a bridge and you have to like you know jump out of the water at a certain height to hit the license plate to collect them it's a ton of fun, and what happens is over the course of the game, as you level up, because it's an RPG, you unlock these upgrades to your jaws, your fins, and 
your body, and, it, and it's awesome. You can do like this shadow ability, you can do this bone, and your shark will have its appearance altered based on what you choose. So like I'm a bone shark now, and I've gone and leveled up to like adult. I think the final one is elder and is the next one I'm headed for. But your shark will visibly get larger and larger and more and more like beat up. And so I literally have like this bone fin, but I can change it and I can make it like a shadow fin and it'll be a purple color or I can make it a bioelectric fin and it'll be blue and it will shock things. And of course, you know, depending on what I have equipped, I do different sorts of damage or sometimes I can heal if I eat things, depending on what I have equipped. You can also upgrade like your organs of the shark to have better sonar and all kinds of fun stuff. It's a blast. And and watching your shark like change his appearance based on what you choose is definitely part of the fun. But this is it, man. That's all you do. You swim around and you eat things. You eat fish, you fight alligators and swordfish, and eventually uh, you get out into the ocean area and I had this really high level killer orca come after me and it was terrifying um and it has lots of little fun nods to pop culture i was way deep actually running from a killer orca and i was out in the ocean and i got down to this bottom of this area and there's a tourist boat down there that had sunk and it had two people on the front of the boat with their arms out doing the titanic pose and chris parnell makes a joke about the fact that, you know, this is how they went down, right? And so I love, 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 love stuff like that. And it's basically, you're just Jaws, man. You're you're going around as Jaws. It's not a super long game. It's pretty repetitive. You're doing the same thing. So I won't play it. I'm taking my time. It's kind of like my Spider-Man at this point. Like I don't even schedule time for it. I just jump in there and I find myself easily throwing two or three hours in when I can and then I'll go away from it for a while because it's the same thing. But then when I come back to it, I'm just giddy and having fun. And, you know, and with it not being that long, I know I'll be able to complete it. I'll go for the platinum and it, it should be a lot of fun. But I think that it is a great change of pace for what's out there for open world games. And people should definitely, definitely give it a look. All right. Well, enough about sharks and spiders. Let's talk about pandemics <laughs> because we don't do that enough. Right. This is terrible. Terrible, man. Wow. Talk about the time of the year for The Last of Us 2 to come out. This game had no chance, man. It, it just it got delayed by the pandemic. It's coming out in the middle of it and we're just going to have to roll with it. But this is the perfect opportunity with The Last of Us 2 releasing next week or this week, whenever, for us to talk about the original game that has touched so many people. It's one of your favorites. It's absolutely one of my favorites. I would wager that nine out of 10 people listening would agree that it's one of their all-time favorites. So I normally start this conversation, Patrick, by asking you this. Why did you choose this game when I asked you what you wanted to talk about? And just what makes it a favorite for you? Well, I wanted to give you a little bit of history behind my gaming experience with it. I originally started playing it on the PS3, and I hadn't had any extended time to play it. So my gaming sessions were pretty short. There were whenever I could get to it. So it was, I think, maybe three years ago that I picked it up on PS3. And I I found myself saying, gosh, this is a long game. And 
it was d- difficult for me to play. I died probably more than I killed, it seemed like. And I eventually got stuck on a certain part, and then my PS3 died. And so I lost all my data. And I was like, look, I'm not going to worry about playing this. I'm not really into it. Then the PS4 deal came out where you could get the PS4 and this bundle, in which case The Last of Us was included. And I gave myself incentive to finish The Last of Us on PS4 in time to play the second one. Because what I remembered, Aaron, was really enjoying the game and being completely emotionally invested in it. It's a game that I had trouble playing at night because of the style, because of the kind of survival horror aspect of it. And if you've listened to the show, you know that horror is not my favorite genre. I've come around to it in certain capacities, but jump scares are not my thing. Things that just kind of kill and just completely annihilate is not my thing. And The Last of Us has these things. (laughs) And I had to kind of get used to it because... I fell in love with the story. It's a story that centers around this human condition asking this nonverbal question, what would you do for blank? What would you do for your survival? What would you do for this person? What would you do for the cause? And it's a question that we ask ourselves all the time. What is our purpose? Why are we actually living the way we are? As you mentioned, we're living in a pandemic right now. And there's a lot of hysteria. There's a lot of misinformation that's going around. You and I have talked about this. And there's so much out there that it almost feels like we're being bombarded, not with bullets and all these other like diseases necessarily, but all these things that make us think differently or try to persuade us to think about something that may or may not be true. And The Last of Us, I think, hits on putting characters in a position where They're having to ask that question, what's worth doing this for? Is this person worth it? Is this cause? Is Ellie worth it? Are the fireflies worth it? What is the point of all this? And having characters like Joel and Ellie to follow and to work through this over the course of the story is something that I gravitate towards. It intimately connects us to the main characters by allowing us to not just follow them, but use them to interact with the world that they live in. So we're not just watching them do things, we're helping them make choices. And it's a story that we can all relate to about how living means more than surviving, and the choices made will always have a consequence. Whether that's good or bad really becomes subjective, and stories like this really challenge that subjectivity. What is a good choice? What's a bad choice? And I vividly remember three or four moments in here where I'm like, oh, I know the story's supposed to go this way because that's the way it was designed, but you can make that cho- you can you can choose to do this other thing. You can. And you're sad when they don't because you want to make a different choice. And they choose to do something else and you're forced to live with that. You as a player, but also these characters. And I think that when you feel like you're walking along this journey with them, it makes you feel connected to them like you're part of this couple part of this team, part of whatever we're calling them. And and I, I don't know that there are a lot of story-based games that allow you to do that because they feel real, they feel grounded, and they feel personal. And I think that's what Naughty Dog does really well in this in this game. Oh, man, that was great. I 
think you nailed something. I'm glad you actually said this because I totally forgot to mention that this is a spoiler podcast at this point. So I don't always give a spoiler warning because many of the games that we discuss on here don't necessarily need it. Games are a little bit different when it comes to spoilers than movies are. But this is a movie (laughs) that you need to not have spoiled. So if you have not gone through the entirety of The Last of Us and Left Behind, because we're going to talk about the DLC as well, this is your warning to come back to us after you have finished this incredible game. Because, Patrick, you mentioned specific moments, and I actually want to hear about those. And this is the perfect time to ask you that, because I want to talk about story. I want to talk about how Naughty Dog is largely known for story now at this point in their developer history. Now, originally, they had done some fun stuff like platformers when they were doing Jack and Daxter and these other games in the past, which I actually love as well. But the Uncharted series and The Last of Us specifically have made them known for this immersive emotional storytelling that you're talking about. What are some of those moments that you're talking about that are examples of how it made you feel invested as if you were part of this movie, essentially making those choices? There are two that stand out and a lot, I'll admit that a lot of my emotion resonated during the winter season and spring as we're getting to sort of the climax of everything that Joel and Ellie have been fighting for. I believe that's probably because for a long time, you, you what you have is The Last of Us starts out with a lot of walking around. I mean, you're getting used to the environment. I understand the mechanics of it, but there's a lot of walking. And until you get to like Billstown, it seems like there's not a lot of things going on. And so what I think The Last of Us does is it goes kind of like in an arc where you have kind of low energy to high energy and then to back to low. So there's two main ones, but I'll go with the third one that I remember pretty vividly. The moment that Joel gets impaled at the university and Ellie is fighting for him. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, Joel's been the man. And and Ellie has sort of gradually become, by her own kind of volition, she has become a more active character like she is stronger but she's still a girl at least in the mind of joel and at this point when he gets impaled and she pulls him off and she carries him in her own way to safety to get on the horse and she takes him off that was a moment because what it did aaron was it opened up that world where we actually get to play as her after that for a little bit something that came as a surprise to me the first time i played it And I know that Naughty Dog wanted that to be a surprise for the gaming world because the expectation is that you're playing as Joel the whole time. So getting a chance to play as her grew her character for me. But that moment was, I think, pivotal where she was able to pull him away from that and basically rescue him. The the second moment was a moment both of jubilee and tragedy for me. The place that I stopped that I could not get past because I'm a terrible (laughs) gamer is really what comes down to the only 
guess quote boss fight and that's when you're fighting this character named david in this burning restaurant hotel thing and you have to sneak around and so my anxiety i'm I'm kid i kid you not both before when i was trying to beat him and then this time when i actually beat him my anxiety was like at a level like 15 out of 10 because you're sneaking around you can't you can sort of use your echolocation type thing but he gets smarter and smarter and by luck I happened to be squatting at a point where he came in front of me and I was able to, to to stab him. So I beat him and then we cut to Joel. He goes to find Ellie. The moment that shines for me and that causes me what I would consider if we were talking about connecting points as we do on our show, this is a connecting point for me. She is she grabs the knife because David's not dead yet. And she proceeds to attack him because he is he's creepy and gross and makes me mad. But she ends up just completely losing it and starts stabbing him. We don't see what she's doing, but we know that he probably doesn't have a head anymore. He probably doesn't have a face. Joel grabs her and she starts just continuing with her hysteria. And he goes, I got you, Ellie. I got you. I gotcha. And in that moment, we see this almost father-daughter relationship that I think was hinted at, but we know intentionally wasn't there to begin with. That was a moment where I think she needed Joel and she captured his heart in that moment. A runner-up for that same kind of thing was when she's in the, uh, she's in the ranch house and she's talking to him about how she doesn't want to go with Tommy that she needs him, that she trusts him, and that you're the only person that hasn't ever left me. But the third big moment for me is what I call the giraffe moment. And, uh, they, yes. and they've escaped the winter. They've escaped David, and they are close to the Firefly camp at the hospital. And Ellie, who has just sort of been in shock, she's just kind of disconnected from Joel, ends up helping him out. Like she always does, he boosts her up and she is supposed to bring a ladder down to him. All of a sudden she finds that there are these animals and we don't see them yet. So we, we see his point of view. We're playing as him and she actually drops the ladder and he's like, what's going on? And she says, come on, Joel, come here, come here, come here. And he's running and eventually he sees these two giraffes that are eating this foliage that's been overgrown. And you see him walk up slowly and pet them. And she goes, that's effing cool. And the music, Aaron, I think I remember it vividly. It's it's so different than what we have in the rest of the story. It feels almost like a breath, like a like we can breathe now. We don't have any more problems, even though we do have more problems. We're going to have more problems. But yeah, it does. It almost feels like you've won, right? Yeah. It feels like a victory. <laughs> and Finally. But the, yeah. But the accent to that is when... He gets to a door and he turns around and he says, you know, we don't have to do this. We could just turn around and go right back to Tommy's. And she goes, but it's not worth it. And I'm like, no, it is worth it. It, it, It's worth it to leave. You guys are, you're, you're, uh," and I, I couldn't even put words to it because I was like, I don't want whatever's about to happen, even though I didn't know it was going to happen when I was playing it. I was like, no, I, w- I want you guys to su- don't just survive, live, because I feel like something bad's going to happen. And it's 
it's that moment, I think, that really defines that I wanted to make a different choice for them, and yet I couldn't. And so now I have to live with the consequence that, with the choice that's been made and the consequence that comes with it. So those were kind of my big three. Those are awesome, man. I also wanted to mention that I think one of the things that Naughty Dog does that is so impressive that I honestly did not know about until recently when I started listening to the official Naughty Dog podcast for The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2. It just started coming out. Um, the host of that is Christian Spicer from the DLC podcast, and Neil Druckmann is on it, and Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson and some other folks. He's interviewing them. One of the things I learned was that there are a couple moments in this game, Patrick, where you don't have to do the thing the game points you to do. One of them is with the nurses at the end of the game when you are crazily killing them. Do you remember this moment? Did you kill the nurses? I did. Yeah, so did I. You don't have to. I don't think you have to. Like, that's the thing. Like, it mm. kind of points you to doing that. But then you don't necessarily have to make that choice. The other one is with Tess. At the beginning of the game, you come upon... I believe it's a soldier or a firefly one two and this person when you're when you're going out of the city and his gas mask has been a come off and he's become infected right and he doesn't want to turn into one of the things and as Joel the game is teaching you the mechanics it's actually part of the tutorial and you're able to shoot him you don't have to shoot him you cannot pull the trigger if you choose to what will happen in the game is Tess will actually shoot him in order to progress the narrative correctly, but it allows you to have that. And this is something Naughty Dog and Neil Druckmann, and this is what makes Neil Druckmann, for me, the probably the goat of directing, is he thinks about things like this, right? All of these little choices, because he said he wants to be sure that the player feels like they always have agency to some extent, no matter what in, that, in the story, because... Right. You want to be able to make Joel's journey your own. And at some point, he said, Joel's, you're going to understand that Joel's journey is what Joel's journey is. Like, you're going to fight against your own morals for a while, and you're going to go through this journey with him where your own morals are going to be tested, and then they're going to go in waves because you're going to find yourself questioning <laughs> what you maybe started out with just like Joel is. And it's it's fantastic that they think of those. I wanted to ask you about the opening. The opening of this game is so iconic. So memorable. It is often considered one of the best in video game history, and I would absolutely agree with that. How do you feel like it sets the tone for the game, and did it knock you on your butt like it does most people? <laughs> it did, because I saw the cover of the game, and I was confused because I was like, this girl doesn't look like the girl on the cover of the game. Because you would assume, without kind of being overly deductive that, oh, this is about Joel and his daughter going on this journey together, The Last of Us, yeah, with The Last Family or something like that, before knowing what the actual story is. So the opening is both deeply immersive and incredibly tragic because what you find out is that he loses his daughter. You jump right into a world where things are becoming slowly more chaotic and you're shocked at what's coming at you, being introduced to Joel, to Tommy, to his daughter, the infected, and a world that's on the brink of destruction. So many questions are flowing in and out of my head. And then 
death and then blackness and then summer. And I'm like, what, what, what? You don't get a chance to mourn. Now, Joel had 20 years, but 20 years in a world where you have infected people running around and you have military taking over things. He didn't mourn, Aaron. He didn't have time to properly grieve his daughter. And I think having that sub, having that sudden change from the death of his daughter to him waking up and it being 20 years later and he's rough and gruff, he's got his broken watch. It puts us in a, ment- in a mental state where we don't have time to grieve either. We can't absorb what's just happened. And so for us, we're sort of in Joel's mind and in Joel's predicament because we're like, okay, the world is what it is. I've got to move forward. And that's how the story really takes off with him and Tess and going to this other quarantine area and all these different things. But that opening is it's so shocking because you don't expect it. And I think that's what a lot of make what makes the last of us so great is that there are things that you don't expect the way in which, and we'll talk more about this, but the way in which you go about surviving in the game is different than the way you go about working through Nathan Drake's world. And, and I think, and I think it's, and it, I think it's yeah, by design because so. the, it's not only the story that's helping kind of reinforce that, but I think that the, the folks at Naughty Dog are saying, look, we want people to feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and having an event like that happen in the first 10 minutes that you're getting connected with, I think adds to that discomfort. It adds to that point where you're like, okay, somebody died early on that we thought might be a good a player in the game. What's going to happen next? And so we're left just kind of going, I don't know what to expect. Is, is Tess going to die? Is Joel going to die? I mean, what's going to happen? So you're left kind of questioning that the entire way. Yeah, it's like a movie that I wanted to ask you about. You're comparing it to a movie, but this is one of the ways in which it's like a movie where you kill off a major character or TV show early on, and it, you just realize as a player, in this case, that all bets are off because you it could go anywhere. Like they're not going to adhere to a conventional storytelling formula in which all the good guys win and all the bad guys die. You actually start playing this game as Sarah. Like she is the first person you control. And so it's not just someone in a cinematic that dies. It's someone you actually had control of, right? You yeah. were her as she was walking through the house and talking to her dad and I think that that invests you even from a very short perspective into that. And I think it also is a great way to kind of tease and allude to the fact that you're going to eventually be playing as Ellie, right? That it's going to happen. Like you're not even, Joel's not the first and he's not, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's so good. It's so powerful and it's so meaningful. And, and I think it does such a great job of getting to the heart of, what would actually be a make something a real struggle to survive that so many people can relate to and just sucks them right in. Yeah. The third person narrative, I think gives a lot of strength to that. And it's really enjoyable because you get the best of both worlds watching from the perspective of someone watching a movie, but then controlling where you look and travel using Sarah, Joel, 
and Ellie. So giving you the ability to control the world that you live in, I think speaks to what you talked about earlier with regard to agency, that in a world that's bleak and dark, it's not a complete open world game because there are places where you can't go, that there are physical blocks. Either I found when I was going through this time around, I noticed more of the staircases that you go up and there are floors that are, quote, blocked off by um, like debris. And I, I wonder, could I ever go up there? Probably not. But that's not the point of this game. The point of this game is to progress the story but to also give you opportunities to explore the world that's created for you. And if it were in first person, I don't think we'd be emotionally connected to these guys because we'd never see facial expressions of the people that you're controlling. We'd never see hand gestures. We'd never see this nonverbal way in which Joel and Ellie interact with one another, except through cinematic story cuts. Yeah, I definitely agree with that 100%. So the game hinges on relationships. I mean, yes, it's about surviving in a world that has faced a pandemic and there are infected running around, but the infected are not the only thing that you're in danger of. Which relationships really stand out to you in the game? And I mean, obviously, Joel and Ellie is a big one. We've talked about some of the moments that you appreciated between them. Who are some of the other characters that you really feel elevate this game above other narrative games like what makes it the fully well-rounded product that it is well for me i think it's david and i and i say that kind of tongue-in-cheek but when you look at him and you see knowing what the outcome should be or what will be he's a guy that i think is just trying to survive and he sees the world through a lens that is different from Joel and Ellie. There's a conversation that he has with Ellie just after they've beaten a bunch of infected and they're warming themselves by the fire. And he said, you know, it's interesting. I sent my men out to this neighboring town and only a few came back because they said that the rest of the men were slaughtered by this crazy old man and he had a girl with him. And you see her face kind of get kind of pale and she backs up and he goes, it's okay. It's okay. You don't know any better. And there's a part of me, Aaron, that wants to believe that David feels like he's doing the right thing. And that, yes, he's jaded, that he's got this not preconceived notion, but from what I can tell, there aren't a lot of women <laughs> in that town. In fact, I don't see, a, I don't know if it's by design, but I only see a handful of women in the entire story and most of them are interacting with the main characters but what you see is a man who i think is at his wit's end in trying to figure out how do i survive in fact he says a couple of things that stood out to me this time where he said i can help you it doesn't have to be this way and i genuinely believe that there's a part of him that wanted to protect her I also believe that there's a motivation to want to preserve her because she is a woman and that she has the ability to procreate. And to that end, I think, yes, he definitely needs to be killed off. But I have this small bit of empathy for him because he hasn't had this in so long. He says to her, it's been a hard winter. 
and we've tried to do the best we can to survive. And there's a sense of despair. There's a sense of loss in his voice, like he's lost family. And he's trying to lead this ragtag group of people to just get to the next day. And so I think watching his art kind of play out, it ends justifiably the way you want it to. But at the same time, you kind of wonder what would have happened if he had been around other people. What would have happened if he had been around different people who didn't have such a jaded view of the world? Would he be this guy? Because even the voice performance that I think is pretty fantastic, I cannot tell this is the same guy that plays Nathan Drake. It's very quiet. It's very soft. It feels very worn. And it's creepy, but at the same time, it elicits the sense of a guy who's just been living and just been trying to survive to get to the next day. So I was surprised at kind of how I felt about him. Uh, I still was glad that I got to kill him off, but it's, I, it was a surprise for me this time around to, to see how he interacted with, uh, with Ellie. That's awesome. I love hearing what other people connect to the game through. And that is fascinating to me that he would be the draw, not from a acting standpoint, obviously, because as someone who considers Uncharted the pinnacle of gaming series, I'm a big Nolan North fan. And I remember telling you after your first go around not being able to defeat him, you came back to the game, you were fighting him again. And I was like, did you know that was Nolan North? You realize like you're fighting Nathan Drake, you know, as your enemy. And you were just like, what? Because he doesn't sound like him, right? I mean, this game has an all-star cast. I mean, it is the top of the top. Ashley Johnson, Nolan North, Troy Baker. It doesn't get better than this. And I, I love that. I just love that David is such a thing for you because he was really not for me. Like he kind of, he kind of just bounces off me. Tess, even though it was so early on, was such a huge part of this story for me. The way in which she shows us someone that Joel has been surviving with all this time. There's this undercurrent of a romantic relationship and you don't get much. You get that they're both guarded. You get that Joel's not the man that Tess is kind of in charge. The only thing you really hear is toward the end, right before she you know, sacrifices herself when she tells them to leave. And she's like, if you have any bit of feeling for me, like the way that we say we do or something to that effect, she's like, then you'll do this for me. And you can tell it's one of those, like, we obviously care about each other. And I, I just, I think she sets a great tone because Joel for so long is resistant to treating Ellie as this special thing that is worth dying for. But when Tess dies for her, it's like, okay, I got to confront this now. Because Tess was like me. Tess was hardcore. And Tess is now saying, no, she's worth it. Do it for me. And it pushes Joel like further. I think all through the game, that's what we get is Joel being pushed these further steps, 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 right? To accepting a redemption of sorts that's going to be found through allowing Ellie to be loved and cared for and sacrificed for, be worth that in the way that obviously his own daughter would have been and was. So I, I really love Tess. And then Henry and Sam stuck out for me in my most recent playthrough. I honestly had forgotten about this section. Patrick, I texted you and I was like, dude, who are these people? Like, <laughs> I'd forgotten about this whole part. It was like in my brain, we went straight from Pittsburgh 
to Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh. Sorry, Pittsburgh's long, people. But from Pittsburgh to David, but there's this Henry and Sam section, and I was like, gosh, there is so much loss. Like, everybody is great. And there's these beautiful moments that I love so much. Two moments with Henry and Sam. I don't remember which one's the son. I think it's Sam. Where... Ellie finds a soccer ball and she's like, Sam, go stand over there. And she kicks it and he catches it. And he's like, Henry, look, you see that? And Henry's like, put the ball down. You know, Henry's very much like Joel. They're both protectors. They want to stay quiet, say, but you get to see these two kids in this crazy world finding a way to try and have a moment of fun, right? Like naturally speaking. And the other one is when they, they throw darts and they're competing against each other to win and they're talking smack. And it's just, those beautiful moments. And that's why it's so tragic when you see the way that Henry and Sam go out. And also a really great parallel to Joel because you have this man who is unable to handle it when his brother dies and kills himself because he doesn't want to keep going. And you got to believe Joel, man, has been in that moment so many times throughout this, his life, right? You got to believe like he's had a gun to his head or he's been ready to just toss it all in because of Sarah's death. And yet he's found he's for some reason, he's not gone that far yet and he's not done that. So I think those characters are really great to show you something about Joel as well as, you know, provide a a progressive piece of their journey. Yeah. I mean, the game is called the last of us and I think it's called the last of me we're not talking about one person's journey. We're talking about how a person's journey affects another and how interacting with different people affects your choices. Events take place that force Joel to make a different choice or to make a new choice. And through that choice, he learns that one thing might be more valuable than another. And we constantly get that. And I think that his relationship with Ellie is... It's at the forefront, so it's going to be a lot of people's favorite. But I think it's justified because you see this discomfort at the very beginning of their relationship and how it becomes and blossoms into a father-daughter when by the end of the journey to a point where he can say, Ellie, you know we don't have to do this. Where he wouldn't say that. She's not cargo anymore, Aaron. They've gone through so much and they've experienced so much individually and together through the choices they've made with relationships with other people that they have to be able to do more than function. And you pointed out those moments with, with Ellie and Sam where they're playing. They're just trying to be normal in a world where the normal thing is a clicker that could be around the corner or a military guy that's about ready to arrest you. What's abnormal is the thing that we find that's normal. Like the, I, I love, there's a moment with Ellie and Joel and they're talking about an ice cream truck. And it's funny to hear her say, what is this? And he's explaining, he's like, yeah, back in the day. <laughs> like back like in the 2000s? What? I mean, where are we? But to her, you know, she's what, 14? She didn't know about any of that. She grew up in the, in pandemic. the quarantine zone. Yeah. This is what she knows. So to have the things that we take for granted, darts, ice cream trucks, soccer balls, and have that viewed from a perspective of someone who doesn't know anything but tragedy or the normal thing is to walk through old malls and department stores and things like that. 
and rummage for things. That's that's a Tuesday for somebody. It's interesting to see the innocence that lives in her and how it affects Joel. I'd like to believe I didn't see an expression on his face, but I'd like to believe that as he's explaining the ice cream truck to her, that there's a there's a smile that he's like, oh, yeah, let me take you back to something that was kind of cool and something that as a kid I grew up having. So we need to be able to have a a story with those kinds of relationships, but not bombarded by a ton of relationships, which is why I think there was the right balance of the number of people that exist in the story because they all felt like they had meaning and purpose without feeling like they were just NPCs. Yeah, so good, man. I love that you brought that up. The combat. I want to talk about the combat, too, because, yes, this is a narrative Gibby game, and that's really the point of it, but it is also a survival horror game, which is something that I felt a little bit shocked about, the stealth aspect of it, when I was replaying it this most recent time. And you made a comment earlier that I started laughing about when you said it. You said something about comparing it to Nathan Drake, and I know that probably is fresh for you specifically because you just played through a couple of those games recently. But again, I actually, when I fired this back up, I started to play it as if I was Nathan Drake. And that doesn't work anymore in this game. Like, you cannot run up and just run and gun. You have to be stealthy. And so I wanted to hear some about, like, how you played the game, what your style was, what you liked and didn't like about the combat and the crafting, and how that complemented your narrative experience. One of the things that stood out to me was that I hadn't experienced that in an action game. Um, the last open world game that I put myself in was, uh, I think it was Grand Theft Auto V, and I believe it was also one of the Assassin's Creed games, Black Flag, where I had unlimited <laughs> kind of ways to hit people or whatever. Because this is a survival horror game, the combat took getting used to. There was a lot of things that you could craft. There's a lot of things that you could have at your disposal, but there were limited amounts to them. And so it took a while for me to actually get used to the game mechanics, in particular switching between weapons and being able to put stuff together. But I love the stealth mode. I love the limited weapons and supplies because it reinforces that that survival mentality, the need to really think through how you were going to attack, or even if you were going to attack at all. And I'd like to believe, Aaron, that there are some points in the game that don't allow you to proceed without being stealth. Case in point, during spring when you're in the sewers, not sewers, but I think the subway area, and there are a plethora of clickers and runners and bloaters. And there's part of me that wants to be like, yeah, I'm going to explode on all these guys. But I'm like, no. There are like 10 of them and you're going to get killed. So you have to sneak around. You have to move slowly. It's a game where the combat forces you to slow down and forces you to kind of wait and think things through. Because in a game like Uncharted, the fun part is being able just to wail on people with bullets and knives and things like that and punches. Because that's the tone of the game. For a game like this... Joel and Ellie are not looking to just go run and gun. And so you shouldn't, as a player, need to do that or feel like you will get something out of it. Early on, I found myself punching a lot of people because I couldn't find ways to move and get into my weapons. 
and that that was a difficult part for me the the ui is not clunky it's just complex now from what i know about the iterations of the ui it's got it, it got a lot better because you don't want to have to run away from a scene reload your gun or switch to a pistol as opposed to a, a rifle and then go back so the mechanics of that have are a lot better than what they were originally but it's still difficult the other thing i like is the crafting i love the fact that it's especially great because it's also driven by choice example the same ingredients used to give you health are also the same ingredients that are used for a Molotov cocktail. And I usually went for the help because I suck and I, I'm usually getting beaten up or uh, shot at with bullets and people have great aim when it comes to, to me running away and whatnot. So those types of things really reinforce the fact that you're not unlimited. Even on easy mode, there's a lot of stuff that you can gather but taking the time to actually craft them, getting yourself vitamins so that you can craft things faster, uh, finding tables that you can use, uh, the parts that you've gathered to upgrade your weapons. I mean, everything is built around choice. Do I upgrade how fast I can reload my pistol or do I upgrade how fast I can upgrade, uh, how, how fast I can reload my shotgun? As the game goes on, you find that you have weapons of choice and that unless you're getting <laughs> beaten up and those things get taken away through cutscenes, you usually have a maybe one or two ellie's a great example she lives and dies by her bow and arrow even though she's a pretty good shot with a pistol or a shotgun i usually played with her with the bow and arrow and so any chance i had to use that as my primary weapon i would but you also have to be able to Aim. That's difficult. Yeah, it is. And again, depending on the level of difficulty, the aim gets progressively harder. So overall, I think the combat adds a great element to the discomfort that you feel as a player because Ellie and Joel are not military people. They're not trained. They're just winging it. And even though Joel is seasoned, he still can mess things up and he can still not do things right. So we're left with kind of a learn-as-you-go mentality, which is exactly who Ellie and Joel are. I agree with that. And, you know, I took the approach of whenever I had bullets, I used a shotgun, which I do in most games. I'm a very much a spray-and-go kind of player because I don't have a great aim. I've never been good at shooters. I'm not a dead eye, And so I want the big bulky grenade launchers and grenades. And I use Molotov cocktails generously whenever I can and stuff like that. So I was that kind of player. And I love hearing how people approach it differently, right? Um, stealth for me is hit or miss in most games. And I actually feel it needed here, but I'm not that great at it. Even this, I'm kind of nervous, honestly, for the sequel, because the sequel is going to amp it up where these dogs can sniff you out. So it's like you're not even safe. You can't in the sequel, you can't go find somewhere and just sit there and be fine. Like you have to be on the move. That terrifies me, Patrick. I'm going to be so host, but it's going to be exciting and we'll find out how I do. The pack changing is one of my favorite things in the game. It's one of my favorite things in any game is when your character appearance is altered based on what is happening through the story. And so anytime you change 
a gun that you have or you modify it with the workbench or you pick up a new tool, the pack on Joel's back reflects that. And it is also reflected in Ellie's pack when you're playing as Ellie with her bow and arrows. And I just, that sort of immersion and that detail really sucks me in. But for me, at least in my last playthrough, I found the combat was an ends to the means. Is that how is that means to an end? Sorry. And I appreciate your thumbs up there. Yeah, the it was a means to the end for how I was going to experience this game because it's not bad by any means. It's it's really good combat. And the remaster, actually, it's visibly, noticeably better than it was on the PS3. I, I remember it feels smoother, faster, quicker turns, things like that. So it doesn't just look better. It plays better. But I love those small moments. I love walking around. I love reading notes. I love hearing the banter between the characters. And then it's like, okay, now I got to fight for a little while. (laughs) Just let me get back to these two characters learning about each other and and being on their journey. Yeah, this is where spring really becomes special. Because for the most part, the first half of spring is just that. It's them walking around and you get those tender moments where Ellie says, hey, Joel, I've got something for you. And he comes back and she said, and she shows him the picture that Tommy had shown me. And she says, uh, I was showing this. I kind of stole it. And it's, there's something really interesting because before that, she's, he's talking about how he remembers being in a quarantine zone and she refers to it. It's, she refers to Sarah. She goes, that must have been really hard for you, losing your daughter like that. I'm so sorry, Joel. That's in direct contrast with the argument that they have at the at the ranch house where he just arguably says, you're not my daughter. Yeah, and it's really rude. <laughs> it's, yeah. Hurtful. And you don't know anything. You, 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 know, you don't know anything about that. You contrast that with this really tender moment and the way that Troy delivers this line, I'll never forget. He says, thanks, Ellie. And it's it's two words, man, but it's two words that say so much. And I think that if they're being attacked by clickers or if they're having to take down military guys, you lose that. So for me, the combat was relentless, and even on easy mode. And again, it's it's because I'm not a great gamer, but I think if you had amped this up to the hard or even the grounded, you're losing the story at that point. You're you're really just about trying to survive and trying to enjoy that aspect of it, which is totally fine. I mean, that's an element of the game that makes it enjoyable. How far can I go and survive, and what can I get away with, and what do I what can I live without? But when it comes to the the moral, the philosophical, the emotional side of it, playing it on its easiest setting allows you to just sit in those moments, to read the notes, to hear Ellie tell you really bad dad jokes, and to really feel a sense of these two characters and others, but these two characters mainly trying to get to a new normal that isn't about combat, that isn't about those things. In fact, one of the great conversations I love is when he says to her, uh, when all 
this is over, the first thing I'm going to do is teach you how to play the guitar. Because he talks about the wind blowing as they're walking down the highway towards the, the Firefly hideout. And then later on, because <laughs> I got annoyed with this, I was like, why can Ellie shoot a gun and a bow and arrow and not be able to swim? What's up? But he says to her, he goes, that's something else. I don't know if she asks him or she tells him or he tells her, but one of them says, that's another thing I can teach you how to do is uh, how to swim. And I think he says, I'd like that. Yeah, I'd like it if that I could do that. So there's these moments where they're just trying to find a sense of what the new life's going to look like. And, uh, and, and I love that, uh, independent of the combat. Well, that is a perfect thing for me to lead into asking you my next question, which was about the DLC. So there is a very, very short chapter that was released after the game came out, and it's titled Left Behind. And it's a pretty important character development piece for Ellie, in my opinion. Have you played it, is my first question? Yes, I did play it. Okay, awesome. Well, I wanted to know what you thought about that. And if you had any comparison or contrast to the regular game, if it was different at all for you, and basically, what did you think it adds to the story of The Last of Us and the world of the game? Well, it's a great chapter overall. I think it really takes into account Ellie's relationship with Riley and why that's important. You know, she makes this statement at the end of the game when she refers to Riley and she echoes what we find out later in the DLC, the part of a longer conversation that Riley is having with her after both of them get bitten. What I enjoyed about it was that it really doubles down on that discovery. There's not a lot of combat until the very end. The way that the story goes back and forth, where Ellie is trying to find medicine for Joel. This is in between, I think it's fall and winter. Yeah. And she's having these flashbacks. She's in this mall. And she's having these flashbacks to when Riley took her to this mall to show her all this cool stuff. And... Honestly, Aaron, most of the game is just them walking around and talking and having fun. Two kids that are enjoying each other's company, which is something you don't see in a game like this, not normally. So for me, I think it was a great little reprieve, a great little narrative breath that was taken. And as someone who didn't really care for a lot of the walking in the main story, at least at the first part, this definitely had that because the focus was less on combat and more on getting them talking and getting to know these guys. One of the moments that stood out for me was when Ellie gets this joke book that we find out later, oh, she had a joke book before this too, and Riley gave it to her. And she continues to tell these really bad puns. like these, just, They're awful. Hearing Riley's reaction and hearing... Ellie's reaction, I almost felt like this was ad-libbed. Like, she was given this book, and, and she was told, just read these and react to them. And so was, so was Riley. So being able to feel kind of connected with these guys in a place of innocence was fantastic. My favorite part was the water guns, because if that didn't speak of kid innocence, I don't know what does, especially in a world where you're equipped with <laughs> with guns and knives, you know, shivs, you have this opportunity to 
have a water gun fight. I mean, how much more of a kid can you be by having water gun fights? I think Nerf would probably be the only comparison to it, but even that feels more combative than than water guns. And so overall, the story was just fine without it, but I think it created a really great enhancement to understanding more about Ellie's past because we don't know much about it. And so I helped, it helped fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, it did for me too. I loved it. I loved walking around a mall, dilapidated mall with just the two of them for quite a while without having to deal with any threats and just going into different stores, playing the video game, mini games and dancing. And like you said, the water guns was epic and you really get a sense for what makes Ellie happy. And I think, of course, it sets the stage for the way that she feels about romance and eventually what her character is going to experience in the sequel. And I told you after going through the DLC again, I was like, you know, it just the game is made in a way that when the marketing started, everything feels like this is about Joel. This is Joel's journey to accept the death of his daughter, Sarah, through becoming a pseudo parent to Ellie, right? This is Ellie's series, Patrick. This is about Ellie, not Joel. Joel is a part of Ellie's story. And what I realized after going through Left Behind again was look at all these people. Everybody that she has loved and cared about, it seems like, has died or gone through major major pain and potential death. And so I can easily see why she's leaning towards where she's going in this sequel. Like at some point that girl is going to snap and go into a rage and God forbid she lose a second person that she truly loves after Riley. Riley was ready to drop her firefly tags. I mean, that was, I cried. I was so devastated. Like, no, please don't just, you know, and you know, it's coming. That's the thing. That's good storytelling. You already know because you've played the main game that Riley didn't make it. But like in that moment, playing it in the past, you're like, J maybe she'll make it this time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe I can just make this happen for Ellie somehow because you want a win so bad. Um, It's so connecting for me to Ellie as a character. And I love it. I think it's a great little additional piece there. Uh, it's Naughty Dog quality. And I hope everybody gets a chance to play it if you haven't already, even though I'm telling you what happens in it. I mean, it's kind of obvious, so whatever. All right, before we go, last thing, I want to get your thoughts on The Last of Us Part 2 hype or not so much, and that's okay because it is looking like it's going to be a really rough go, but also the HBO adapted series that was announced that's going to be led by Neil Druckmann, and I believe his name is Craig Mazin. I may have his last name wrong, but he is the producer creator of the Chernobyl series on HBO Max that is excellent. And uh, also he is involved or the director of the first episode is involved in the upcoming Borderlands movie with Eli Roth. So there's a lot of like great people attached to this. How do you feel about that? Are you excited or are you like, uh, -uh not cool for me? No, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm going to take a pause though, because the game itself just puts you in a, crazy desperate place there's a sense of kind of getting yourself in a headspace where you can enjoy a story like that without feeling so emotionally overwhelmed and i'm not saying that i'll play the last of us part two or watch the series when the pandemic ends 
because we're not in a zombie apocalypse. We're not dealing with something that's got an infection rate of like, or a death infection rate of like 50% or something like that. So it's not like I'm being reminded of COVID-19 being the worst thing ever, but I need some levity right now. And I think what will probably happen is I've got Uncharted 4 to get through and I'm going to, I put Spidey on pause to get ready for this episode. So as someone who's looking forward to the storytelling and what's going to come out, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to the most is wondering what is going to change in the TV series. Is it going to be a direct representation of the story of the last of us? Are we going to get new characters? How is it going to play out? Is it going to be like a limited series type thing? These are the things that I'm trying to kind of get my head around, but I'll tell you, I trust the people in charge. The whole entire creative team for Chernobyl is on board for this. And so for something like Chernobyl that has kind of a bleak and dire tone to it, this makes a lot of sense. So I think in terms of being faithful, when you have your director from the game attached to be a part of the creative process. It's a lot like Robert Kirkman was for The Walking Dead. You knew you were going to get quality storytelling, even if it deviates. So I think I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where the deviations will happen, because I think there will be, especially if you're going to do more of a television style, television show style story. You have a lot there already, but is it going to be in a different city? We've got Joel and Ellie, but are they going to meet other people besides who they do meet? Is Tess going to be around? I don't know. I haven't read much about it, and that's by design because I don't want to know much about it. I want to kind of be kind of fresh going into it. But I am excited about playing the second one. I've got it pre-ordered, so I'm going to download it as soon as it comes in. I'll just kind of put it on pause until I'm kind of ready to get back into that bleak world where Ellie's going to be taking down new enemies and hopefully not getting killed very much. <laughs> Totally fair. Well, buddy, this has been amazing and awesome. This little feel and film reunion on the Games We Love podcast. I've enjoyed it, and I expect fully to have you back in the future. Where can people find you or find your work on social media? I know you're not always active on social media, so I'll just go ahead and say it for you. It's okay. Not everybody is. And right now, lots of people are taking a break, and that makes a lot of sense. But if people do want to seek out your podcast slash my podcast uh where, where can people do that <laughs> self-proclamation i like it now you can know. you can find out more about feeling film at feelingfilm.com we also have a facebook group that's pretty active you can check that out feelingfilm.com slash group slash feeling film can you the confirm facebook that group is facebook.com slash groups slash sorry did i say feeling film okay yeah so we've got a really great facebook group that is keeping things positive like we do it's a lot of great conversation happening in there currently i am taking a break from social media like a lot of people but you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter uh, my twitter account's still active i don't check it very much but you can find me there i also have a website called this and that kind of gives you more insight into my passions and what I'm about, things like that. So check it out. Awesome. Well, listeners, if you like what you heard here, please subscribe, share us with your friends, follow us on Twitter and other social media at the games we love. You can follow me personally at Aaron L white. That's Aaron E L W H I T E. I also stream on Twitch weekly. 
You can find me there at Aaron L. White, surprisingly. I'd love to have you follow, come talk, chat, talk, tell me about your favorite games, tell me about your favorite movies. We can talk about anything that makes you happy. Here on the show, we have more great conversations coming very soon. Next up will be a chat with Megan Sullivan, formerly of IGN, currently of the History and Games podcast, all about Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And then my local film critic friend, Jeremy Johns, YouTube guy. We're going to be talking about the Legacy of Kane series. As a reminder, always help us out if you can leave us a five-star review on your listening platform of choice. It'll ad- allow us to reach more people, show up in more feeds. Those algorithms are extremely important, especially here in the infancy of a podcast. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and sharing your passion for games with us. It's been awesome. Everyone, thank you for listening because this podcast is for you. We'll be back next week, and until then, get out there and fall in love with a game.